This is Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Hi, welcome back. This is episode number nine. Woohoo! I know. I'm going to do something special tomorrow when we record episode number 10. Like, we'll, we'll do a little poo thing like you do on New Year's Day. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. With the little things. <laughs> episode 10, episode 10. Wow, already? And this is our first episode on history. Of course, I'm sitting with, um, I'm going to go in reverse order, Sensei Jackie. Hi. And Landon. Hello. So we couldn't get anybody to come out and be with us today. It is two weeks till Christmas. Yeah. Wow. And it's a very, very bit, two and a half or two. And it's a very, very busy time of year. And everybody does want to come and we want you to come. So please don't be shy in getting with me and saying, put me on the list. Tell me when you're recording. We want to be there. I have a long list of people. If you don't know if you're on it, get back to me. We want you. Also, a shout out to Josh for this idea. This was fun to write and we hope you enjoy it. Our topic today is history. 90% of this podcast came from a book called Martial Arts Traditions, History, and People by Emil Farkas and John Corcoran, published in 1983. Okay, we are going to start out with Landon telling us the history of the color belt system. My sensei gives students a sheet of paper when they join karate that describes how to tie your belt. On it, she says that we don't wash our belt because it honors an old tradition. Hundreds of years ago, there were no color belts. After years of training, the white belt would turn black. To take the story a little farther, the cloth of the black belt would wear away, revealing a white belt underneath. That return to the white belt would signify reaching a level of mastery that meant the black belt had come full circle. Since I looked online and found at least three sites that support this theory, GentleWarriorWay.com, SpiritMadeSeal.com, and on the Mineralogical Record site, they mention that the first person to create a color belt system was Jigoro Kano, the creator of Judo. He was teaching in the public schools and decided that with so many people training, it would be a way to figure out their progress. One more thing Sensei tells us, and her teacher and many before him always said too, your belt only holds your gi clothes. I think that means that it is still my responsibility to work hard and find my own identity as a karate student. That was really good, Landon. So the judo guy was the first guy to create the belt system because he was the one who took it out into the public schools for the first time? Correct. Huh, that's cool to know. Really cool to know. I know that Funakoshi also took it out into the university level schools, but yes. I do think that the judo came first. The judo came first in a lot of things, which we're going to try to attack in our next history lesson. That will be an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our next section is about where karate actually started. Hey, do you want to add anything about belts before I do this? No, but I'm always interested when we do say that the, um, the belt only ties our gi, and that's all part of the ego podcast, so... When we get to it, I, I hope that we remember to bring back this part of this uh, podcast. I don't know if I'm going to put this in the, uh, or if I'm going to cut this out, but the Ego podcast is, is scheduled to be a short right now. Okay. Because Ego is a very, very complicated part mm. of, just read, read your Freud, he'll tell you. It's a very, very complicated part of a person, and it is so easy to address when you're standing in a room sweating. I came out wrong. 
when you're standing in a room trying to accomplish something together, but it's very difficult to address in theory. It's true. It's just something you really have to be in the room and it has to be happening to you and you have to be with somebody you can trust so you can talk about it at that point. And that's really one of the things that really builds a karate relationship is that trust. Trust. But the funny thing, I, I have a funny story in that one time I was talking in a group of black belts and this did not happen while I was training, but the master black belt was teaching the group of black belts and everybody was being completely egotistical and he took away all their belts and replaced them with white belts right on the spot. Wow. Whoa. Yes. I have no idea how that story ends. Wow. But it was that's a cool little story, isn't it? That is. Very interesting story. And how about this little tidbit? Your belt is never supposed to lay on the ground. Yes. Unless you're wearing it at the time. Yes. yes. You're not supposed to take your belt off and drop it down on the ground out of respect because it symbolizes your hard work. Yes. That's a pretty good little tidbit. I like that. Yes. Okay, back to where did karate actually begin? Needless to say, people on the internet argue. And the big (laughs) argument is which came first, China or India? Yes. And most experts agree that it is India. Let's just say that and get that over with. So everybody pretty much agrees that martial arts officially began in China, although it had been happening in India, but you'll see why here in a minute. At the Shaolin Temple, which was built around the 5th century A.D., what is a little undecided among those who write all this history and who chatter on the net is this. Did the Shaolin monks actually create their own moves based on animal movement? Or did Bhutiharma visit China from India and bring his defense movements also based on animals and teach it to those monks? So as yeah. we earlier stated, most people think that that is what happened, that he brought that over when he visited. But it wasn't called Kung Fu or karate at the time. So either way, the first organized school was that Shaolin monk temple. It was the Shaolin temple where the monks were living. Good. Thank you. Here's a little aside. Bruce Lee studied Wing Chun Kung Fu, and he eventually created Jeet Kune Do. Jackie Chan studied many different styles, which I did not know until I looked him up. Really? Just Google it. That's what it says right here. Just Google it because it's way too much for me to write. But he started, I read, in what is called an opera school, which is a movement school for show. And then he transferred from them into different kinds of kung fu, including Bruce Lee's style, as well as the Shaolin kung fu. The first recorded school in Japan was in 720 BC and was known as the Nihon Shoki. It was a school of Japanese wrestling. Many martial arts came from the tradition of the samurai. Maybe we'll try to do a podcast on the samurai separate because, wow, that would be fun. And, and they 18 weapons. Uh... Either that or watch the movie Shogun. <laughs> the Japanese word for the samurai for their way was Bushido. Bushi meaning warrior and Do meaning way. So now you'll realize that anytime you hear a, a Japanese word with the word Do, D-O, on it, it means the way of. Master Cleijan was given the name American Bushido by Peter Urban, and I think that was very befitting because he, by far and away, lived his life as a warrior. Yes, definitely. Meanwhile, going back to the history, all over the known world at the time, there was a lot going on in Indonesia, in India, in Korea. The first recorded Barcelot school in Indonesia was in 900 BC, while Kali was developing almost at the same time in the Philippines. Really? That's what it said. Oh, that's interesting. 
And in Korea, as everybody probably knows, they're very famous for the Taekwondo, which I think you're going to define for us, Sensei Jackie. Yes. And it actually got its beginnings in 37 BC. Is this BC or AD? They said BC. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Right? Before the clock switched, as they say. (laughs) They should teach this to us in history. (laughs) We are. That's where it was finding its roots is what they are saying. It found its roots in 37 BC, although it wasn't until the early 1900s that they were taking it out of Korea and into the rest of the world. So that was 2,000 years later. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so there you have it. I want to add a little, just to finish this off, a little note that I heard on Modern Marvels, which is a show that's fun for me. Yeah, it is fun. (laughs) The less nomadic man became, the more organized in ways to fight he became. There was a correlation there. As long as he was nomadic and not guarding something or taking someone else's something, then his fighting skills were against one-on-one man and animals. But they needed to have more strategies and more organized fighting methods, the more, the less nomadic they became. So if if you want to fight about that, you got to fight with modern Marvels, the TV show from the History Channel, I believe. Yes. Now... I don't know that all martial arts movements are based on animals. Maybe you found out something about that, Sensei Jackie, but I believe the majority of them are, if not all of them are. Their movements, as far as I could find, are all based on the movements of animals. And I think a lot of it is because when the martial arts began, it was to defend oneself from uh, pirates and from robbers who were coming along the roads as they were being formed. Agree. And I also think there was no other basis. That's right. That's right. So they watched the way the animals defended themselves and tried to move like animals. Okay, let's play a little fun game and say animals that we are sure that some martial art is based on. Can I start out with the praying mantis? Because that's such a cool animal and that's one of the kung fu styles. Definitely. The jaguar or any of those small cats. Very karate related. I don't hear that a lot in kung fu. Did you hear that a lot when you researched kung fu? In kung fu, depending on whether it came from northern China or southern China and what animals were indigenous to those parts, that was how they did their um, names for their kung fu. Monkeys? And yes. there is a there is a drunken monkey kung fu, and there used to be a guy really? who'd come out in open tournaments when I was a Q. He was really one of the only people who did drunken monkey. There might be a lot of them now. I haven't been out. It was so interesting because it looked like he was going to lose his balance, and then he'd turn it into another move. It looked like it was extremely difficult to learn. Uh, can I say that I think the, an animal that would make a great animal for a karate style, but I haven't heard of it being used, is the bear? Yes, and also the eagle. Agree, the eagle, although there are a lot of hawk-type animals there in are, some styles. But I've, I have never heard of the eagle style of uh, any martial art. All those raptors rock. Yes, they do. Because I also love the owl. Oh, Oh, yes. yes. And with the owl, not only do you get the hunt, but you get the protector and you get the wisdom. Just ask Winnie the Pooh. All right. Now we really are moving on. We've grown in our maturity. And we're going to move to, I believe, a comparison of the top three styles. I chose um, the one Korean style, one Chinese style, and one basically Japanese style. Now, so many of these styles have merged and become hybrid styles. Going back to just sort of the simplicity of the style. Taekwondo, which is Korean, and it means the art of kicking and punching. 
Some people say the art of hands and feet. Some do. I have heard it both ways. It used to always be said the art of hands and feet, but now they're saying kicking and punching. Kung fu, which is Chinese, it means um, skill or ability. It could even be a skill in teaching or uh, a skill in basket weaving. And again, that sort of relates to a martial art in Japan. Is that where you're going? No, but that does. The martial art in Japan is not just the karate. It could be um, the art of tea is one of the most famous martial arts, and it's really difficult and really intriguing. I've only been to two tea ceremonies, but I'd love to go to another one. So what are they? They're They're amazing. And a test in patience, which is very good for me. Well, also the ikebana, the uh, art of flower Flower arranging is another one. Yes. And the the little trees. (laughs) The bonsai. (laughs) I'm making a cutting with my fingers, you guys. So, you know, the little trees, that's another one that don't have anything to do with fighting, is what I'm saying. That's right. But that is on the Japanese side with karate. And I'm going to go back to Kung Fu to say that the more precise term for martial arts in China is called wushu. Oh. And, and we have heard that word many, many times. times. And there are several hundred styles of Kung Fu or, you know, as wushu. As there is in karate. As there are in karate and more and more each day. Okay, so... Let's go back and just talk about Taekwondo. It, it combines linear movements of karate with the circular flowing movements of Kung Fu, but it adds these native kicking techniques. And so, therefore, the trademark of uh, Taekwondo is the use of feet. They have such a broad array of kicks, and they emphasize spinning and flying kicks, and they focus kicking to the head. And they... uh uh emphasize the use of wide stances, kind of like the karate horse stance, not so much in the narrow, more pedestalized stances. So it it, it looks um, very square. It's low to the ground, low center of gravity. And that is the look of Taekwondo. That's interesting. I, I think so. Now, in the Chinese styles... They had northern and southern systems. The the northern systems were linear with uh, shorthand tactics, and the southern systems were more circular. And they mm-hmm. used both long and short arm styles. That's and I true. had heard that the that the reason for that was that one was a more open plain area and one was a more forest region. That's why I had heard that one was more short and the other one was longer system. Oh, and and they have a lot of intricate footwork in uh, Kung Fu based on the movement of animals, we, which we've talked about. But it's a, a, a very uh, beautiful, sometimes looking like a dance form of martial arts. Japanese systems are traditionally linear. And as they grew, some of them have combined circular and softer movements like our goju. They use many stances, both wide and narrow, or less wide. In USA Goju, the American boxer pose came, and it's used as a fighting stance. That was not in uh, Goju Ru. Very cool. I didn't know that. But Peter Urban uh, brought it to the States, and when he did his uh, come all, everyone come in Madison Square Garden, he really started using this uh, American boxer pose. Now, Before you go on, I had heard that, and I don't know exactly what the timing is here, but this was oral history. I had heard that when Chojin Miyagi invented Goju, and if you want to have the argument as to whether he did or didn't invent it, please write me. 
Um, he was the first person to name his style after something other than where he was training. So Goju oh, is named literally hard and soft. Uh, yet Fudakoshi named his style Shotokan because he was his karate name was Shoto. So he was sort of the transitional person from the place to oh. uh, the the way the style works. And like we have Okinawan Tei. I have a super Okinawa. soft spot in my heart for, for Gichin Funakoshi. I said his first name right, didn't I? Yes. And let's see if we can spell Funakoshi for you. Since Jackie's got this, she's going to spell it. <laughs> F-U-N-I-K-O-S-H-I. Funikoshi. If you want to look him up, he's a, a just a, a real good example. He was the first person to bring it out of secrecy and into cities and try to make it more popular for everybody. That's but right. my original point was that um, the Goju was named after the characteristics of the style as opposed to yeah. the place where, where it originated, Naha Te, Okinawan Te, etc. Sure, yeah. Exactly. That's so interesting. And That's really interesting. when I was in college, there was a, um, a Vietnamese style called Kung Nu, yeah. which they told me, I didn't do any research on this, They I talked to them and trained with them a little bit at the time, and they told me that Kung Nu was Vietnamese for heart soft. Oh, that's what they told me. So if you're a Kung Nu martial artist, get back to me. Let us know. Or if you speak Vietnamese. <laughs> I would like to know all of those things, yes. Okay, so karate people train in a dojo. And Kung Fu people train in a Kwon, K-W-O-O-N in English. Ah. And Taekwondo train in a dojang. Ah. The dojo, dojo, dojo. The head or the teacher in the Taekwondo school is a... Sabum, S-A-B-U-M. I, I may not be saying that right. I know that it's right to say Sifu, or the Kung Fu teacher, and of course the karate teacher is a sensei. What they call students and then black belts in Taekwondo is called a gup or a cub. And a don <laughs> is a black belt in Taekwondo as well. In Kung Fu, I did not find what they call their black belts, but they called the students Shi Zhang. And we, in karate, call our, our students non-black belts Qs, and our black belts are Dons. And so what is a Q? What does it literally translate to? Boy. And Don translates to? Man. So, you know, you kind of have a little girls left out club there, but, but we cope. Talking about what they call their teachers, the word sensei for the Japanese is for a teacher of anything. Not just karate. So, do you did you find any information saying that that was true in Sifu or in I forgot the other one in Sabum? I did not. I wonder if it is. That would be interesting to know. And and if any of our information is incorrect, I would love for you to write in and tell us what is the correct thing. Okay, what else you got? In Taekwondo, they their self defense is basically with no weapons. They don't use weapons. But then you go to Kung Fu, and they have eight. Eighteen traditional weapons. And interesting that the samurai in, in Japan carried 18 weapons also. But theirs are long and short, double, soft, throwing. They have a staff. They have a sword called a gim, butterfly knives, three-section staffs, and darts. I mean, there are so many Chinese weapons. A lot of those cross over to uh, karate. Sure. Three-sectional yes. staff does. Yes. As do the darts. Yes. And, and just a little quick, because taekwondo was traditionally non-weaponry, I'm positive that they do weapons. Some styles do weapons now. Now. And taekwondo also often associates itself with hapkido. 
And 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 then with karate, uh, many of the weapons had an origin in farming. Uh, the bow, the side, the nunchuck, tanta, comma. So what are we going to finish with, Sensei Jackie? Just a little bit about the uniforms. The Taekwondo uniform uses a, a traditional style pant, but the top that goes over it is more of a tunic, and it's tied at the waist with a belt. The Kung Fu traditional uniform is silk pants and a loose top, also silk, usually with a stand-up collar. And then the closures are what they call frog closures, and it has nothing to do with the animal. It's, uh, it's an embroidered button and loop. And loop. Thank you. And also, they have the most beautiful uniforms. Kung Fu has way prettier uniforms than we do. And in karate, the, the gi is most commonly white, uh, even though goju styles in the States wear black. And it has a traditional pant with the, t- the pants tied with the tie closure, although now they have um, elastic and a jacket with inside and outside ties. And other than that, what I found were that the colors of the belts or sashes were very, very similar in the three styles, going from a white to black and then colors in between that generally go from light to dark. Oh, that's it. I've never thought about that before. You're right, though. They do. Even ours do. Yes. Oh. Almost all of them do that. And, of course, in every place that you do martial arts, proper courtesy is expected. And that is so interesting about the belts, because in Goju, we have white, green, purple, and brown, and in black. But it, it goes up. I've never yeah. thought about that. That's very cool. Huh. You guys both did a really good job on this one. You too, Sensei. Thanks. <laughs> That's really sweet. We hope you've enjoyed it. In fact, if you have enjoyed it, then you've got to subscribe to us and give us a good review because all those things are going to help us. Our podcast has been doing really good. We've been getting so many listens. We appreciate you all so much. Without you, there's hardly any point we're talking to ourselves. (laughs) Although we are having fun with it. We are having fun. (laughs) While we do enjoy that, we'd really like to hear from you and see who we're talking to out there. Okay, so that's it. Everybody check out. Hope to see you soon. It was a really interesting day, and I can't wait till history part two. Oh, that's true. I'm working on it. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm Sensei Michelle, signing off for tonight.